that's what he's done here with the Corinthian church, particularly because they are doubting so much the resurrection or have a misunderstanding of actually the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. And so here is verse 35. <coughs> it says this, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Paul responds by saying they pretty much don't understand anything because they don't understand this. He says, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body, um, not the body that is to be, uh, I'm sorry, but what you sow is not the body uh, that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body, as he has chosen, and to each kind a seed, its own body. For not all flesh is of the same, but there is one kind for humans, and another for animals, and another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another kind. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in its glory. And so here Paul transitions to bring it home. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, your life, your resurrection. What is sown is perishable. And what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. But the last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. That is, when you think of natural, think of physical. The first body that Adam was given. Then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, you and I. As is the man of heaven so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have bore the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh, it's a tremendous warning, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written in Isaiah, Death 
is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And that is how Paul decides to address this one isolated problem in this one particular church in Corinth. This whole chapter, as we've looked at over a series of weeks through the month, has addressed this one issue that if you, we, you, <coughs> you or I claim to have faith in Jesus Christ, it must, absolutely must be a living Christ. For there is no living faith if Christ is not alive. That is, the object of our faith, in many ways scripture teaches that God in a certain sense, not all the time, absolutely, but in a certain sense, gives us what we want. It's very helpful to understand when we consider the things the scriptures say about hell. No one is there who doesn't want to be there. The same thing true. If you are in love with the Lord, Jesus Christ, if you hear the gospel and you understand that there is a man who is alive and crowned with glory and honor, and that is for you, if your heart is moved toward that, even for a moment, do not resist it. That's the Lord pulling you. And that aspiration you have toward glory in Jesus Christ that faith is considered your life. That is a living faith. That if you would trust in Christ that way, He will give you, He will impute to you, He will consider you in the righteous glory of Christ, and it will befall you now and in the age to come. So He goes so far to say to the Corinthians, correcting them in this way, that it's absolutely impossible earlier, where He said, how can you say, because they're saying, how could we possibly be resurrected? How could there be a resurrection? And Paul responds by saying, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sin. And if you are still in your sin, you absolutely are the most to be pitied. Because you've given yourself to a lie. You've wasted your life, not living for yourself, but living for another. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And because he's been raised from the dead, everything else changes. For Jesus promised in John 10, he said particularly, I am the good shepherd. Everyone else who came before me were thieves and robbers. I actually can offer you an abundant life. He says, I came to give life. And that they might have life abundantly. That's the whole point of what Paul is saying to them. Your living faith in Christ is much more than it is now. It is a faith that lead, leads to true, true abundance. Let me tell you something then that you already know. We are incomplete. 
this whole life we live is one massive, incomplete pizza pie. We miss slices. There's so many pieces that don't fit. There's so many things we lack. Our whole life is actually could be considered as just one string or one chain of uncompleted tasks. We move from doing this to going there to coming here, and then it's over. It's just one thing after another, after another. And you wake up in the morning, the alarm goes off, and you know you have to do something. Go somewhere. You're obligated here. Your children are there. The work wants you here. Your life is always moving. But it's never actually done. And of course you know the experience, the existential threat of death is not a consolation. It actually seems all the more to be less complete. That we know at the very end in which it should feel as though we're done, we feel as though we only begun. And there was so much more to us. So much more we wanted to do. Dreams or visions or aspirations or expectations that were never, that were cut short entirely. Loneliness, sickness, failing mind, memory, body, everything about us in this present age is incomplete. And we know it. We feel it. We existentially feel the pressure of it every day. It's almost like this reality that we know really well, and it's actually organized in such a way uh, to manipulate us, is uh, right when you're watching a TV show, and right before the commercial break, that's the most interesting part of the show. Have you ever had experience? It's, you know, protagonist, antagonist, good guy, bad guy. And all of a sudden he rounds the corner, and what does he see? And then it's a Ben Gay commercial. See, like, that sense of incompleteness, that, that, is, that feeling, that is what we feel all the time. Actually, we don't know how to not feel that. That is how we live. The worst is when you're watching a, um, a TV show that's actually done in a series or a whole season. And you can watch the whole season through. And right when they get to the end of the season, that's the worst of the worst. Because they're not making any more shows for many months. And so they really get you on a cliffhanger. And that incompleteness, they're like, they're, oh, I hope these people come back and watch our show. Because we are going to not tie any knots. We're not going to complete anything. But the reality is, that's exactly how our life is. It is incomplete. Now the most beautiful, I would say, the most beautifully biblical image of this is art. Actually, that's exactly how we're given it in Scripture. We're told that God himself is a master artisan. He had formed us from the ground of clay, and shaped us like an artificer, like a man who knows how to sculpt and craft an image from marble. The problem is, and this is something you might never have heard before, is that it is evidently clear that what he began in that garden was never completed. When he formed the man, he breathed upon him, and he was alive. That was not him, the way he should be. 
was only the beginning for what he was to become. This is Paul's point. An illustration of this, I think so beautiful, is um, the famous artist Michelangelo, who did like everything that's ever been awesome in art. In the 16th century, he was commissioned by Pope Julius II to do many different art projects. And what you know about Michelangelo, because everyone knows about Michelangelo, that he was an absolute artistic genius. People don't know so much about him is all of the art projects he's done that failed. There are, people say, perhaps a whole quarter, if not three quarters of his jobs, his art endeavors that have never been completed. And they're just as famous if you look at them. But they're not done. One time, the Pope commissioned him to make a tomb. It was intended to be a massive tomb. It was supposed to be three stories tall. It was supposed to have body-sized figures of the actual length of five to six feet tall who were to be 40 in number on this three-tiered tomb that was supposed to adorn. And he never even got close to it. If he would have completed that, it would have made his his sculpture of the David or his other famous things uh, pale in comparison. It was was a tremendous undertaking. And, And it was... People, historians say it was absolutely foolish for him to even try to make a three-story tomb monument of marble and granite. One of these images of him finishing this tomb now was only taking up the size of one wall and only a few figures, not 40. But what's so beautiful for our purposes is that there were four that were incomplete. And those who study this kind of art call them the four slaves. An image of this, I want you to see. They're called the four slaves, or the four prisoners. This is it. This is the garden, you see. He made us in his image, and he formed us, and he fashioned us. But this is our life. They call them the prisoners, because you can see they're bound, they're unfinished. Their faces, their feet, their hands. They, it's like they're trying to break out. It's like they're almost formed, but they're not where the master intended. Not where the artisan wanted to go. This is an image of our life. We find here as Paul is bringing out the gospel. That he issues this reality. That Jesus Christ is, he says, the second man. And he is the last man. That is glorious to understand. That we ourselves are incomplete. That Jesus Christ himself is completing us. And that therefore we must work to complete our life. Because we are in process. We are only partially done with the hands of our artisan. These inevitable conclusion... And the center of it all is verse 44. This is where Paul says this. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. That is, if then. That is, by necessary consequence. If there was a natural body, 
If there was something that was being fashioned and sculpted and formed, the first man being a natural man, if there was a natural man, Paul thinks as so opposite of how we all think now, is that it was intuitive, it was It was knowledgeable. It was obvious that what God was doing there in creating us, the natural man in the garden, it had to be that there were to be a spiritual man. That is, it was never intended to just be that. It was always intended to be more. If there was a natural man, then there had to be a spiritual man. For God breathed, he said, in Adam's nostrils, and he became a living being. But it's not enough, you see, to be only a living being. We know it's not enough to be only a living being. We are weak, and our breath is weak. We are only a living being. We only breathe. We are prone to death and decay and destruction. And the depth of our life is the depth of our diaphragm. At any moment that contradicts, we are done. And that mocks us. We sense that to be wrong. We sense that to be incomplete, not immortal, not incorruptible. And that is the reason. Because we were not made for that. We were not finished. He had not sculpted us after the way he intended. He was only a living man. He says, if there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. That is, if there is a grain of wheat, then there should be a sheaf of wheat. To look at the body that way. If there is an acorn, there must be an oak tree. See, we know that. Because we see how the seeds are planted and what results. But no one has ever seen a glorious man. We don't understand that that is what was inside him when he was made. He was intended for glory. And he never grew. Try to explain the glories. If someone's only seen an oak, a little acorn, and say, you don't understand, you see. This will grow to be multiple feet wide. So many feet above, you could sit in its shade. And if you never saw that before, you would say, you're crazy. The gospel is that, you see. We look at our bodies, and the Corinthians looked at their own hands and say, how could the dead be raised? By what nature would they come? If you've never seen it, you never know. But it is what it is. The Lord who made all things to grow has also made our bodies to grow and to form and to be matured into glory. See, he particularly refers to the natural man. The natural man before he even sinned. He quotes Genesis 4-7. It says, and God formed man. Genesis 3-7, God formed man out of the dust of the ground. Sorry, 2-7. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. That's before sin, before the fall. Paul goes all the way back to there to say, you see, the natural man, he was formed and fashioned and breathed. He was given a material, physical body, but then also given the supernatural power of life. He was breathed upon to give an immaterial, unseen soul, which animated and moved his whole being. And that was glorious and good and true enough. And he had a natural knowledge of God in which he 
woke up and his eyes were there and he said, you are my God and I am your creature and whatever you say is my command. And in the very next verse it says that God took the man. And it says he placed him in the garden. Given the nature of how we are intended to grow, it could very well be said that he took the man and he planted him in the garden. He set him there against all the other plants that he made. All the other trees that have seeds and, and grow in glorious branches and maturity. That there was a man also who was planted there in the garden and given every opportunity and circumstance to thrive with food and water and everything he ever needed in the glorious presence of God. Romans 5 says, 5.18 says, that he was intended to live. He was intended to have life. But sin, of course, stunted the growth. And so therefore, he was planted, but he never grew. He was sculpted, but he was never finished. He was painted in the very image of God, but it was incomplete. All these images point to the reality in which we sense the problem of our own existence. That we were made for more. We were made for glory. And Adam realized he was ashamed when sin entered his life. He was exposed. He found out he was naked. And he shortly died thereafter. This kind of art, incomplete art that is. It's a whole genre of art actually. It's a type of art that's called being incomplete. You can find whole exhibitions of this. One of the most famous ones is a painting of FDR, our president, from the previous century. Elizabeth Shomanoff was an American-Russian artist. You see, in 1945, FDR sat before her so that she could paint his likeness, paint his image. And he sat there and she began, as you can tell, she began. He said, I have a terrific pain in my head. And then he collapsed on the floor. And this is what's left. That is us, you see. That is what he was doing with us. He was feeling it in. He was making us after his image. But then we fell on the floor condemned to the die in the dust. And in many ways you could say this is a naked painting, isn't it? It's not what was intended. When Adam hid from God in the garden because of his sin, he said, Adam, where are you? I said, I'm here hiding because I'm naked. And God said, who told you you were naked? How did you know you were incomplete? How did you know that you weren't finished? Do you see what Paul has just said here? The incomplete life. What was sown was only perishable. It is intended and always was intended to be raised imperishable. 
What was sown in dishonor was intended and always intended to be raised in glory. It was sown in weakness. It was raised in power. What is sown a natural body will be raised a spiritual body. This was the purpose. That was the tree of life. There was a probation. There was a test. There was a place to go. There was something to do. He had to lay hold of life. He was meant for glory. And he never attained. He only found nakedness of himself because he never was clothed with what God intended for him. Paul goes on to say, For the perishable body must put on the imperishable. For the mortal body must put on immortality. That's the clothing he was to have. That's why he felt so wrong inside. That's why people today, ourselves included, are broken. Empty, lonely, no friends, thinking about being a boy, thinking about being a girl. We are naked, ashamed, anxious. Because we were meant to be clothed with the glory of God. To be a Christian. To wake up in the morning. I'll never forget when I was first converted. I woke up in the morning. And had this. Whisper. Upon my soul. That I'm loved. And it was almost just like a garment. That just covered every inch. Of my body. It's what. Were meant for. And if you don't have that, you feel exposed and wrong and wicked and weak. But you were meant to be clothed from perishable to imperishable, dishonor to glory, and weakness with power. But that only comes from God, the one who made you, investing in you these words of life to say you are my child you are my son and my daughter and I love you and all your sins are gone and I'm here with you and I'll never leave you and I'll always speak to you and I'll always be with you no matter the whole world condemn you no matter every friend leave you I am yours and you are mine I am the good shepherd everyone else that's ever come before you is a false liar I offer you life and life abundantly life that never dies life that is incorruptible imperishable immortal and full of glory and that glory will weigh upon your shoulders now and only more in the age to come in which you will be clothed and you will be confident and you will be assured in your identity with me because I put my identity on you I've made you in my image and I will form that image to a perfect maturity that is the gospel that is for us to know and dear God that world we live in needs to know for we are naked and we all know even up to our president the emperor is wearing no clothes it's crazy there's a difference between resuscitation and resurrection I worked for Many years as a paramedic. And resuscitation is kind of exciting. It's nice when someone doesn't die. It's fun to see someone almost die and then not. Be clinically uh, dead without a heartbeat. And maybe before the brain stops, you can save them. And that's fun. 
but it's just child's play. It's just a game. So every day I went to work, I knew they were going to die, and I would follow. Lazarus, come out of the tomb, Jesus said in John 11. And he came out. They said, but he's been in there four days, you see. His body's going to be decomposed. And Jesus said, well, I so happen to be the resurrection. And so he brought him back, and he reconstituted his body, and he reanimated his body. He revived him. He resuscitated him. But Lazarus went on to die again. Paul is saying here, is not resuscitation. He is properly, really speaking about resurrection. That is, what is sown perishable will never perish again. Imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, the dishonor of even seeing a dead body. The many I've seen in my days, you cover them up. When you're there at the scene and there's nothing to do, they're covered. In the hospital, when they're declared to be dead, they're covered. There's a certain nakedness. that It's not real nakedness. I mean, they could be dead with clothes on, but it's a dead body. Why look at it? It seems macabre and, and wrong. And Yes, that's the point. It's inappropriate. It's, it's, it's shameful. It's dishonorable that, to see someone who was there and only the shells left, and they're not there to even cover their own self. It's almost a disrespect to them. And so we cover our dead bodies. Isaiah says that, the, the pall of death, the, the shawl, the, the, the garment that's over everyone in death, will be swallowed up. Jesus will suck down the very veil of death that covers us all, and we will be alive. He will swallow it up in victory. This natural body must put on a spiritual body. See, right now, as the church, we are being outfitted for war. Eventually, we will be outfitted for victory. Right now, we are the church militant. That's why Paul says, put a belt around your waist to the Ephesians in Ephesians 6, which is the belt of truth. Put on your chest the breastplate of righteousness of Christ and be strong and fight against the flesh, your own flesh, sinful flesh, the world and the devil himself. Take the sword, which is the spirit, which is the word of God, and speak it and cut anything else out that is contrary to the word of God. Destroy it. Iconoclast. Every idol in the world by the word of God. But see, that's what we wear now. These things for war. What Paul is saying is that once you're done fighting, you will win. Because Jesus has already won. And you will set aside your shield, you will set aside your helmet, and your breastplate, and your sword. And you will be the church triumphant. You will put on immortality. You will clothe yourself with glory. You will have a garment around your neck labeled power of an indestructible life. Tethered to Jesus Christ's own resurrection, which is the beaming light of heaven. That is the clothing you will wear. It will come off when your armor is done. This flesh and blood, Paul says, for this reason, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I remember years ago reading... Aristotle's apology. 
in which he was so confident about his death. Ever hear about the story of Aristotle? He had to drink hemlock because he was corrupting the youth. The city of Athens decided to condemn him to death, so he drank poison to die. And when you read the end of his apology, he thinks it's going to be awesome. I'm just going to die, and I've been a smart guy and a philosopher, and I've tried to do everything that's within me to do my best. If the way of life on the cross is a man, a trail sated with blood and a mangled man hanging on a tree, and that's the way of life, then what is the way of death and destruction? Paul says it's absolutely foolish to think flesh and blood could inherit the kingdom of God. You must be outfitted to cross the Arctic cold. You must be outfitted to traverse the arid desert. You must be outfitted to go down to the depths of the sea. But you're going to walk into heaven. Without this body, there is no life. Without being clothed with immortality, without being clothed with glory and power, you cannot enter the kingdom of immortality, the immortal kingdom, the imperishable kingdom, a kingdom that Hebrews 12 says cannot be shaken. To be in a kingdom that cannot be shaken, you must have and be constituted in a body that cannot be shaken. So flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But glory to Jesus Christ. All of this our incompleteness and our lack, the most beautiful phrase in the whole is this. The second man is the last man. We are being made complete by him. He will finish the sculpture he started. He says this, the first man was from the earth and he was of the dust. The second man is from heaven. The first man is a living being. But the last atom is a life-giving spirit. There is no third man. The second man is the last man. It's complete. There's no more. There was one man, and he fell, and there was another man, the second man, and he's the last man. There is no 2.3, 2.4. This is 2.0, and we're fine with that. Because Jesus has won. Jesus has brought humanity to what it should be, and that is him, united to God in glory. You see, this is our life, no longer relying upon the spirit and weakness as he was in his ministry, always suffering and doing miracles from time to time. He is a life-giving spirit, exalted with glory, without sin, perfect righteousness, and given the spirit, owning the spirit without measure, that in shortly after his resurrection, pouring out the spirit in Pentecost, and renewing the world soul by soul, soul by soul, pouring out his spirit, that now we know the spirit, but we only know the spirit even more, that he possesses the spirit with all glory, so that properly and truly, he is the second man. But he went to the cross. He passed the test. He transformed the tree of death, which is a cross, into a tree of life. That all would look upon the cross and call upon Jesus Christ. will live. And he tasted. He was bitten by the snake. The sting. The fangs of death. The bitterness. The sting of death that Paul speaks of. Sunk into him on that cross. And as he felt it, 
He gasped his final breath. And he said, it is finished. And now he truly is the second man. And the last man. That he has completed all of this for you. As we bore, he says, the image of the man of dust. We will also bear the image of the man of heaven. That everything glorious and good in Christ is for you. That when he says, I can give you abundant life, he is talking about a life that is tethered to the very undying God that cannot be destroyed or set aside. And all of this, nothing more than a twinkling of an eye. The last trumpet and the last man. In the twinkling of an eye, he says, the dead will be raised. It's almost like this. It's like the quickness of your eye on this side of the room and that side of the room. Almost instantaneous. Almost not measurable. The blinking of an eye. That he will bring it all to completion. That is, when Jesus comes, the trumpet, the symbol of God's presence, descending into the world, as is done many times through Scripture, that when he comes, it's almost like you're changing in your bedroom and someone mistakenly, a stranger, walks in. And before the eye, their eye could glance across the, the, the room, and the twinkle of an eye, you cover yourself and you, you clothe yourself before they see. The appearing of Jesus is exactly that. He will come in glory. He will come in power. All of our weakness, all of our nakedness, all of our shame, in a moment, transforming us to mortality, to glory, to power, to be reconstituted, to welcome him in his kingdom when he comes. This is what you were made for. This is him finishing the sculpture that he started. Dear Father God, we ask that you would please find grace upon us, Lord. Lord, let us be steadfast and immovable. Lord, it's so wonderful to know the abundant life you've given us, Lord. Will cause us to abound in all our work towards you. Knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Lord, we ask that every bead of sweat, every tear that's rolled from our eyes, will be turned into and crystallized for diamonds, Lord, in our crown of glory that you prepare for us. Nothing we do in this life can fall away, for you have given us life eternal. So therefore, Lord, help us to work for you, to make our life complete. In Jesus' name, amen.